Welcome to the Recognizing Potential podcast with your host and certified relationship coach, Cameron Thompson Alaricki. This is the podcast for all things real and raw on building the healthiest, happiest marriage and parenting relationships possible. As a coach, I am on a mission to help couples divorce proof their marriages. Together, my clients and I are changing the statistic that half of marriages end in divorce by learning and more importantly, applying tools and tips on how to communicate clearly, create peace and love generously. I am happily married and we have two boys and in my spare time, you can find me reading, painting and traveling this gorgeous, incredible world. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Recognizing Potential podcast. Today's guest is a longtime friend and someone that I have not connected with in a really long time. So I'm really excited to get you guys in front of her and the wealth of information that she has. Our conversation today went off on so many different tangents that are all so helpful to marriage and family and parenting. I'm so excited that you guys get to listen to her. She is one of those people that has that personality that's just so calming and grounding. She is absolutely wonderful and someone that actually was in one of my first cohorts for purpose coaching. So I'm so excited to get to reconnect with her and have you experience that. And without further ado, Holly Smith. It's so good to see your face. It's so good to see you. Hello. How are you? Oh, so good. Yeah. Things are going good. Yeah. Good. Good. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Recognizing Potential podcast. So thank you so much. Yes, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I know. I'm really excited. So, um, so yeah, let's just dive in. So for people who do not know who you are or what you do, kind of tell <laughs> us a little bit about you mm-hmm. and you, how you work with attachment theories. Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist, and so that means I was trained in a family systems perspective. So the way that I describe myself to people is I really do see myself as a relational therapist, meaning um, even if that means they come in and it's just like, I hate my job, I hate my work, well, you're not relating very well to something there, right? So even in right. that context, that's still a relationship of sorts, or even coworkers or boss, what have you. But typically... What I learned actually just through some of my own work um, and just observing when I worked in hospitals in the psychiatric you know, setting, a lot of times, sadly, it seemed like we were treating the least sick person in the family and just watching the family dynamics when it was visiting hours and what that would do to the unit. I'm like, there is something here that is going on that we need to pay attention to. So that was really what kind of helped open my eyes to the whole um, idea of just, okay, the family system is something that we really need to look at and dissect sometimes and dive into and wade through. A hundred percent. Yeah. Even growing up, um, you know, now that I'm looking back on my childhood, it's this like, and kind of going through, I think there's such a misconception around childhood trauma. Like I wasn't abused. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any of these, like, like we weren't ever homeless or anything like that, but there's still like every child has their own trauma to deal with. And so when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at like the different dynamics between my parents and the dynamics between my parents and their parents or Mm -hmm. my grandparents and their marriages or the divorces and stuff like that. And so there's just so much there to dig into and it's so much to overcome and reparent and Mm -hmm. all the things. So, yeah, I love that you touched on if you're, if we're just helping the least sick person in the family, because it's the same thing that, and that's what I tell my clients too, is a marriage can only be as healthy as the least healthy person in it. And so Mm -hmm. if you're not owning your own stuff and you're not Mm -hmm. trying to help yourself, Mm -hmm. you're probably the least healthy person in that marriage. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. It's interesting. I just heard, and I wish I could recall now what podcast I was listening to, but someone referring to looking at through the lens of childhood wounds, like you were referring to, When you start viewing your parents as your grandparents' children, 
And I thought, wow, that is a good perspective. Instead of all of the ways that we felt wounded by our parents, who really, by and large, we do really believe people do the best they can with what Absolutely. they've got to work with, right? They're often, and, and so I do take real, um, I really try to be careful and cautious around not, you know, not shaming parents or blaming parents, right? There's some stuff that we all have to own with that, but they're oh, probably sure. doing the best they could. But then when you start thinking, well, they were children too of their parents. And you start seeing that trickle down effect and how people attached or how they didn't, or, you know, whether they avoided conflict or they dove into it. I mean, there's a lot to discover there. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, um, you know, me just pony up and tell me all your deepest secrets here. So I want to ask you a question that's super deep, but how do you view anxious attachments and narcissism. Ooh. Okay. That's or attachment theories in general and narcissism. Yeah. Anxious attachment and narcissism. Okay. So narcissism, it's its own whole bag. I know. I know. But there's also such a cultural, like it, it's being talked about now so much. And so I'm glad that you're diving into that. That the, the anxiety that one must feel when they feel above it all and detached and really truly what's happening with narcissism is this huge overinflated ego, right? That everyone sees because they're protecting something that is so wounded. And so afraid on the inside of being found out, being discovered as a sham, a fraud, just this little wounded ego, right? That gets really puffed up. And then often out of that anxiety comes just some of the worst behaviors, right? And and even if that's not the intent, that is the impact that that person often has on their loved ones and the ones around them. And so that, that anxious attachment, you just sense it. It's like this force field around them. Like everyone else is like, is it safe to enter into this conversation? Or you can see it visibly on them. Like, I, I, I got it, you know? So then it kind of creates this anxious avoidant dynamic, mm-hmm. right? In the relationships. So yeah, just kind of off the top of my head, that's not one that I had actually really dove into before, but I see just as we're talking here, some of those themes, right? So do you see more narcissism in avoidant partners? Um, I think the avoidance would come from the partner of the one who is diagnosed as with narcissistic. If we're talking narcissistic personality disorder, which right. is different than just someone having some narcissistic traits or, you know, egocentric traits. Right. Right. But I think it becomes so, um, there's some anxiety, um, with the, the person who is trying to attach to the one who has the narcissistic traits, but it feels so unsafe that they often will avoid and shut down. Like, I'm not even going to, cause I know how this is going to go. I'm yeah. just going to let them be right. And let me just sit over here and we'll just let it all go by. It's going to be fine. I'm going to get through it. That's typically more the dynamic that I see. So, okay. So I, I actually, as I was, as you were talking, I'm thinking, you know what? Half of my audience may not even know what attachments are. So the attachment theory, um, kind of dive into that. And then kind of, I, there's so many different attachments out there now, but like the main ones of anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, um, maybe even a little bit on the anxious avoidant or disorganized, mm-hmm. um, kind of dive into that and then dive into the secure attachment and what that looks like. And what was the last piece you said? Dive into the secure attachment the secure, and sure. what that looks like. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, originally where I looked at too is, uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. They were some of the pioneers, right. Of, of attachment theory. And so a little bit based on object relations, right. We, we are people who respond to feedback that, you know, as, as is given. And so largely looking at kids and their attachments to their caregivers. Right. And so what happens is either a kid gets the reinforcement that they need and that, that, feedback that they need and they really start feeling securely attached like they can count on that parent and they feel like their needs are being met right so that would be part of the secure attachment and then what was being observed in some of these studies that they were doing the research was that if there was inconsistency on the part of the parent um let's say perhaps um well 
there could be something that sets a parent off and then the kid never really knows what is it that's going to set mom off today or, or dad off, right? And so there, there's this insecurity that I, like, I don't really know. So I feel like I'm walking on eggshells, right? And often that could produce that, that anxious or just the insecure attachment. I don't really know what to expect here today. So that would be the, the one side of the anxious attachment. The avoidant really comes along a little bit more with neglectful caregivers, right? And so a child would be looking to mom or dad or caregiver, whoever they're growing up with, and largely they're just unavailable. And maybe they're physically present, but maybe emotionally they're just MIA, right? And so at that point, the the child is going to start learning, okay, well, if this is going to get done, I guess I'm going to do it. I can bathe myself. I can pick out my clothes. I can take care of my siblings, right? And what, what develops is this sense of fierce independence, right? And almost like taking pride in it. Like, I got this, right? Well, if you've got it and you're growing up then into adulthood, what do you need to attach to somebody for? Like, I'm good. I, I don't really need you, right? And so there's like this standoffishness and this push. And again, that's not an intentional thing. It's just kind of like the development that, that happened, right? Um, the last one would be disorganized. And you're right, there are different variations of these, but maybe we could just stick with these three for today. Right. I think that yeah. would be just a little bit more streamlined. Right. But the disorganized attachment is really often more linked with abuse and trauma. So where things were intentionally happening in the home, that were it was a chaotic environment, a lot of abuse or trauma, and it just kind of leads to this, this fear or this um, feeling there's no safe place for me here. There is no security. And so it's just, I think of it almost like a pinball machine and just kind of bouncing back around and, and, and never really settling in. And it's this heightened sense of fight or flight and just, just disorganized and unresolved is what uh, some people call it. Yeah. So um, I've heard though with, with disorganized or no, sorry, with um, avoidant attachments, they don't really know, like any marriage, they don't really know we're in a relationship, any relationship, like you're going to often see like a lot of one night stands, or you're going to see a lot of like, you know, they get married and then it's, they use the whole line of, okay, well, I'm just leaving. I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to deal with this anymore a lot. Um, which then, and usually the avoidance attract the anxious or the anxious attract the avoidance. And so then it's just like Tom and Jerry all the time. Mm -hmm. And so with the avoidance, then they, they don't know how to be emotional. They don't know how to emotionally connect with their partner. And as an, as an anxious attachment, they need that like so bad. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like an out-of-body experience when they don't get it. And then they fight for it harder, which only pushes the avoidant away more. Agree. Right. Yes. Yes. That sense of because I had to, so I'll, I'll take on the, actually I am the avoidant one, let's just be honest, right? And so I'm the anxious one. So, right, so we, we could partner up here pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm growing up as the oldest of three daughters and just kind of setting the example and feeling like, okay, I've got mom and dad have got their hands full, that sort of thing. I just did for myself and kind of got praised for that, right? Because I, okay, we're doing a good job here, right? So as one grows into adulthood and doesn't really have that sense of, I'm going to go to this person to feel loved because I'm just going to take care of all that myself. I'll figure that out. Don't worry. It's almost painful in some ways for avoidant attached um, people to embrace that they even have that need or that emotion any of the things that are kind of like negative type of emotions, like, nah, that's okay. Let's just, often you're going to see people who are really successful, right? Because they can almost bypass the entire emotional side yep. of their life and go achieve things in life, in their careers. They might be productive members of society that people are, you know, well-regarded, but their personal lives are in shambles yep. because they don't know how to be vulnerable and authentic and just say, I really do need you actually. Can you just come hug me? Right. Yes. I mean, it's that simple and that hard. Yes. Yeah. My, my husband is avoidant, like mm-hmm. to the nth degree. And I think a lot of that culturally, his dad, um, wasn't around a lot. 
and he was the middle of six kids. Um, and so, but the baby of the, of the boys. And so he just, he did do a lot on his own. Like they were never at his games. They were never, you know, any of that. And so, um, and his mom was always, you know, taking care of another baby. So it was like, they just kind of fended for themselves. And that was, you know, great and whatever, like they had a good childhood, but at the same time, it was that whole, you know, he was not taught. And as a Middle Eastern culture, they're not taught a lot about emotions. Like you don't talk about emotions, especially as men, you just don't. And so I think Americans can kind of relate to that too, in that as men, you're looked at as weak. If you, if you have emotions or if you show those emotions And so a lot of times you're going to have the women as the anxious, the, Mm -hmm. the men as the avoidant and not always like, especially, you know, but that's a very blanket statement, but that's typically, um, what I'm seeing. And then with the anxious, like we just thrive so much on that emotional connection that it's insane when we don't get it, like we literally feel like we're crazy because mm-hmm. we're not getting our needs met. And so we push further for it and we need that, um, that emotional, uh, that emotional connection and we're not mm-hmm. getting it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where it comes into the family systems terminology would be that pursuer and distancer, right? Yep. Where one person who's anxious, like, please talk to me, please love me, please. We just need to talk this through. And the, yep. the avoidant one is like, get away. I need some space. Don't talk to me about this now. Right. Yes. And it's that dynamic that just goes over and over and over. And so part of my, my work then and your work too, is like, let's look at this dynamic and this pattern is not working for you. So we need to disrupt this pattern and figure out a way out, right? Right. So then that's where the secure attachment comes in. So talk a little bit about what that looks like mm-hmm. and how like, how we get there. Yeah, you know, I think that there is a misconception. I see it in my clients all the time that they, they feel like if we were securely attached, we wouldn't have problems. And that's not accurate. It means that we can work through the problems. We are going to have our, our lives disrupted, our relationship. There is going to be a rupture at some point, right? And then the securely attached couple will be able to repair that, knowing that we are going to make it through this. So yes. instead of the avoidance of like, we can't talk about it, or the anxious, like, we must talk about it. Like, okay, let's just let things happen here. Say what needs to be said, knowing that we can repair this. So the way I think about secure, securely attached couples would be to feel like I can say what I need to say and be seen and heard and valued and respected, right? There is space for you to feel however you're going to feel. And that doesn't mean it's my fault. It just means something happened here. And there, there's a little bit of kind of taking some of the, um, I, I hesitate to take the emotionality out because I don't want to put that on the, the anxious attached person, right? But it's a little bit of just paying attention to the pattern. It's not really so much about what is this argument about. It's not about the content of it so much. It is about um, what's, what's the dynamic at play here? And did my words have an impact on you that I didn't intend to happen? Let's yes. talk about that. Let's just have an exchange of, of feelings and information so that we're not trying to repeat this pattern again and again and again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. So how do we get past those attachment injuries and Mm -hmm. really like get to a point of security? Yeah. (laughs) And I realize it's not, I realize we can do like 18 podcasts, but well, and that's the thing I feel like people really want three easy steps and to solve your, you yes. know, connected with all of that stuff. Well, we know that's not how it is. And I am really honest. I really try to be honest with my clients around, this is going to take some work. You won't do it perfectly the first time or the second or third time. It will be humbling and it will be frustrating because it feels good to indulge those patterns and that, that just, those things when we just want to nurse that wound a little bit, that kind of feels good if we're being honest. And to break those old patterns, we must be willing to set that aside and entertain the idea 
that our partner might be right, actually, yes. and it might have a valid point. And to be humble enough and gracious enough to say, oh my gosh, I did say that. And I actually was trying to jab you a little bit there. Or to say, oh my gosh, I said that. And that's not at all what I meant. I didn't know that it landed on you that way. And to humbly approach that situation with your partner with the best intent and believing that they have the best intentions for you as well. And I think that's where we get caught in our stuckness of wanting to prove that we're right and that we have a point in this laundry list of all of the ways that I've done this for you and you haven't reciprocated. You can argue that all day long, but is it going to fix anything? How's right. it working for you, right? In the words of Dr. Right. Bill, right? It's not. So we have to set it aside and choose something different. Pride. Getting rid of pride. Pride for sure. Yes. Dad done it. That's hard. It is really hard. <laughs> yes. So you said that you have a way of using your attachments to better yourself and to, uh, I can't remember exactly how you worded it when we were texting, but basically to use your attachments for the good. So what is that? Talk about that. I know. So I do kind of parlay this into the Enneagram territory because I feel like attachment. <laughs> Yes. So, and I don't know how familiar your listeners are to the Enneagram, you know, well, I talk about it a lot. So I, I know you do. <laughs> I was thinking they probably know, I don't know how much they know all the way around the circle, but as far as the triads go of that feeling, thinking, doing, and the, the uh, fear-based and the anger-based and the shame-based stances that we carry, The way that I use attachment theory, I think it's a good way to kind of um, see where you're at and maybe some of the why that we all just kind of want to know. Yep. And then when it comes to the practicality of what am I going to do about it? I love the Enneagram because it makes it really personal for each and every person to look at their own dynamic and it kind of gives a little pathway. So for myself in that Enneagram three space, sometimes I know. I have to be willing to be a little more vulnerable and to feel the hard feelings and to slow down and explain to my Enneagram five partner, the details that he thinks I'm just withholding because I'm being rude and I want to be in control. And I'm just like, this is not efficient. We need, this is not, we've got to go, go, go. Right. And I need to slow that down. And, and when I don't, and when I, I'm just kind of barreling through, I'm hurting him by not, by not giving him what he needs. So I I love the Enneagram for that reason. I feel like it gives me an idea of like, I know what my partner's wounds are. And now it is my responsibility to not step all over those wounds and re-injure him. It is on me to make sure that I'm honoring him and respecting him. And so I love the how that the Enneagram presents. Like, okay, I just need to slow down, listen. You know, it it gives you some practicality. um, Absolutely. I love that you said that. My so I'm a two and Moses seven. So it's it's taken a lot for me to understand this, but you know that's why we do what we do because you know we're always growing ourselves as as the caregivers for or, you know the the healers for others. So as a two, I have realized that like I can be a lot. Like is my emotions? My emotions are very big, very deep. Um, I you know, and that's a lot for my Enneagram seven husband who Mm -hmm. is like, Oh God, don't feel the emotions. That's scary. And they're gross and I don't like it. And, and so Mm -hmm. that also plays into his avoidant attachment because that just absolutely works together with each other. And so, you know, for him, he has to realize that like, no, no, don't run away from the conversation, even though it's hard, let's sit here. Like healthy conflict is still healthy. It's good. It's okay. It moves you forward. You know, it's, it doesn't, life is not always going to be roses and rainbows and butterflies. And so as much as we would love it for it to be, it's not. And so then he also has to understand that like that deep need for me to be needed and wanted and heard and seen and like connect through talking is so important because he is the one that's like, just hit the high points and move on. Let's go. And that doesn't work for me. And so. Yeah. 
And especially wow. in your, your anxious attachment too. And, and I don't really believe that there's a way to go around the Enneagram and say, these numbers are going to be anxious. These are going to be avoidant. I do right. think that really, I think there's a lot of other things that factor into that. But sure. for you in that Enneagram two space of like, I need to be needed and I need to know that you love me. And, and I really rely on that feedback from him in your anxious attachment. Also, you're going to keep pursuing him for that. Yep. And he's just like, nope, nothing to see here. That's all, unless it's positive exactly. and fun and we can move forward, then I'm down for it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So using the Enneagram like that, that's so important, but then you also talk about, um, knowing that each one carries a measure of anxiety. And then, um, so how often do you see secure attachments in your office? <laughs> well, eventually, hopefully, right. Sometimes, sometimes um, I do see it and where I've seen it um, honestly play out the best, just a couple of examples off the top of my head are in um, partners who have endured long illnesses and they've had to really be there for each other and really support each other. But then they might have um, real problematic relationships with their children or, so, or, or a parent, something like that. So they're still coming in to do some work on like, we really feel good here, but us as a team with the rest of the family, it's a struggle, right? And so when there is hardship and, and couples can turn in and they really rely on each other, I I really do see a lot of secure attachment there. I mean, we can, I mean, on the other side, I guess we go into some codependency, but, um, but that's one of the first, um, yeah, first places I see that. Uh, sometimes I'll see it with a parent and a child, um, especially in divorce, but then not with the other parent. And so there's that, that detachment there. And the kid is really just trying like, how, how do I get closer? I don't know. You know, so there's a lot of, that. Yeah. but, um, so the secure attachment, it's, it doesn't happen by accident is the thing. And we're not really taught this. We don't, it, it kind of, it really bothers me. I still remember sitting in grad school. I'm like, why do I have to get a master's degree to find this information out? This should be part of like what we are taught as people in this culture growing up, right? Like ninth grade would be a really good time to start this, honestly. Absolutely. Emotional intelligence, attachment theories, the Enneagram, like self- All of it. Self-awareness is a really big thing that a lot of people do not have. And if we would start that as a class in ninth grade- Yeah, wow, would the world see so much difference Yes, so many areas, not even just relationships, but like your job, your Mm -hmm. social skills, your, I mean, everything, your parent and and child dynamic. I mean, can you imagine the difference if we were taught from an early age that rather than uh, just observing, you know, knowing what you want, you know, out of any given situation, And rather than jumping to a conclusion and thinking that you have that other person figured out, what if we were taught to slow down and check your own motivation first and then slow down some more and ask that person and say, it appears to me that dot, 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 am I getting that right? Or am I off the mark? Because what if we actually had conversations rather than jumping to some assumption and then it turns out we're wrong anyway. And now we've got this whole skewed vision of what these relationships are, whether it's a working relationship or a personal relationship, it doesn't matter. Like we don't do enough slowing down and really checking our own self-awareness and asking good questions of those we care about. You know, it's interesting that you say that. It's funny. I, um, <laughs> I was working with a couple about three weeks ago and she kept saying, I feel like you're saying this, or I feel, I feel like when you say this, it makes me feel, and he finally, he blew up in the middle of the session. And he was like, I feel, I feel, I feel this is such crap. It's not, I feel this is, it's so unhealthy for you to say that all the time. And I was like, well, actually Mm -hmm. she's communicating Mm -hmm. well, and you're not. So let's try this again. And after the session, he goes, I was never taught this we didn't talk about feelings in my family. And I was like, and that is why you feel awkward when she says, I feel because you don't know what to do with that information. So that was a real big, like aha moment for him. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was really like now looking back, I was like, and this is why mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is lessons because it's not taught to every single person. Right. Right. Well, and we come out of a history too, a recent history just in our, our own country about privileging thought and rational thought and logic yep. over emotion. And we need both. We yes. need all of it. That's why we have the, think, the thinking, feeling, doing parts of self, right? And so we, we've got to hold all of them and to say one is better than another or one doesn't apply, especially in relationships. It's just not true. We That's need right. it. Both. Yeah. All three. All three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are you seeing a lot of lately? Like, what are you seeing um, a pattern in like a lot of, a lot of times I'll see like, oddly enough, like all five of my clients will come or like, um, you know, I'll have all six of them or however many I'm working with at the time. I usually don't work with more than five or six mm -hmm. at a time, just cause it's a lot of energy, but like, they'll all be having problems with like love languages that week, or they'll all be mm -hmm. having problems with like, you know, like random thing or like um, mm -hmm. housework, they'll all be arguing over housework sure. or something that week. So it's really yeah. interesting to me how that all comes to play. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I'm seeing any one topic necessarily, but what I am seeing, and I remember the day that I thought this when we kind of all went into quarantine in 2020, right? And we went into telehealth, which thank God we were able to do because we're just all hurting and the world needs to talk about it, right? Yeah. But I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I wonder when we're going to start seeing the fallout in the form of divorce because everybody's going home. Everyone's working from home. They're not getting their outside, you know, reinforcement and the things they're used to. And I'm seeing it now. So here oh, we yeah. are, the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. Um, and I'm seeing a lot. And as often as you know, often people start looking for professional help almost as a last ditch effort. And they so they're do. coming in a little bit. It makes me late. so sad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of what, what I'm actually seeing for the people who are really still in it. They really want to save their marriage. What I'm seeing, oddly enough, I've heard myself saying this to several couples now, like, you guys could sit here and each just write down the list of the ways you feel wrong, the ways you feel invalidated, the things that you have done to try to save this marriage. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you wrote it on a paper and I picked it up, I would not know which one of you wrote it. Your yep. argument is the same. <laughs> I tell mine all this. Yep. That's exactly the same thing I tell mine. Yes. They are arguing exactly. the same thing. And they're so stuck in trying to prove it to the other they're not listening to see, oh, you actually feel the same way I do. Like I get excited about that. Right? Like I oh, do too. we can solve this. Right. Yeah. But there's this, they're digging in, but if you just knew how much you hurt me, I'm like, well, tell them. And now how are you going to solve it? Right. But they want to stay stuck in that you hurt me kind of phase. So that's what I'm seeing a lot of and just trying to help them see it's okay to set that down. It's okay to give your, your partner a soft place to land, even if you're still kind of pissed at each other. Right? Yes. That's, that's kind of where I'm seeing a lot of stuckness and people digging in because they've been under the same roof for a year and a half. They've tried to juggle the responsibilities, their jobs, what have you, and they're sick of it. <laughs> well, and tone too, you know, when mm. everybody started working from home, it was like, oh, hey, I have a conference call here pretty soon. Can you be quiet? And now it's like, hey, shut the damn door. Are you kidding right. me right now? Like right. we've changed our, yes. we've changed our dynamic to each other. Yes. And it's again, pride. Pride makes such a huge thing. Like mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. It's ego. It's mm -hmm. fear. It, you know, there's so much fear. Yes. And unrealistic expectations. Oh, well, yeah. you should know that. I mean, I'm sure if, if you and I had a dime for every time we heard, well, you should know that, right? Be a billionaire. <laughs> yes. And, and that's the thing. And that's part of the pride maybe. And it's just like, no, that's maybe an unrealistic expectation. You actually have to say what you need or remind, they can't, we can't hold everybody else's calendar in our brain too. when we're trying to do our own stuff. Just say it, just ask for what you need. It's not actually that complicated, but when you've been at odds for so long, it feels like, oh, there's one more thing I have to say, one more thing I have to remind, right? 
That, that is pride. That's ego, right? It is. It is putting your wants above your partner's needs. Yes. Just, oh man, we could go in, <laughs> we could go on for days about that uh-huh. because mm-hmm. yeah, I tell my parents, mm-hmm. my couples all this, all the time, you're mirroring each other. You are doing the exact same thing she is doing. He is doing the exact same thing you are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all, all of it. All yeah. of it so many things. So what do you think the solution is? Do you think it's going back to the office? Because I don't really see a lot of companies doing that now realizing how much money they've saved mm-hmm. in remote working. So yeah. what do you, what do you think the solution is? I think it probably does depend on the couple, right? Because everybody, you know, there are some people that when they are, they become aware of what their pattern is and they realize, oh yeah, I actually could have a softer startup here to use, you know, Gottman terminology, soft startup versus harsh startup, just change your tone a little. I think that really could be enough that when people become aware, okay, we need to, to do something different. And now we're not feeling like we're on edge all the time. There are some people that they probably actually do need to look outside of the house because they feel better. And so I, I do, I think it probably just depends on the couple, but you got to know yourself. You got to know, am I going to get bogged down because I see the dirty dishes or I can hear the laundry going and you know, whatever the thing is, and I can't give it my, all of my work. And then I feel stressed because that stress is stress. Right. And we, right. we bring that in. And when it's all in the house too, I'm also a believer in like, we put off vibes, right? We have this energy. And if we've had a really stressful, hard day at work, which is in the room next door, it's really hard to turn that off then, right? So, and just come into the room and be kind to our family. So I do think that couples need to have that conversation. Like how how do we function best? Because I might need to just go rent a space somewhere or go to the library or whatever the thing is to get some work done. Have you ever read um, The Zim Zum of Love by Robin Kristen Bell? No, but I listen to Armchair Expert quite a bit. So I, I'm aware of their dynamic, but yes. what's the name of the book again? The Zim Zum of Love, Z-I-M-Z-U-M of Love. Love it. Okay. So I love this book because it's almost like a children's book. Like they have sick figures drawn in the book and they talk about how it's very short read. It's like, I don't know, maybe 120 pages, maybe. Um, But they, a lot of them, it's got drawings on it. So like, it's not even that much reading, but it talks a lot about your energy. Like you were just talking about and how it is your primary responsibility when your partner is near you, like everything gives off energy. It's a science, it's science, right? And so it is your responsibility as a partner to make sure that your energy, when your partner is near that is welcome and is is feeling warmth and feeling like you they're wanted right yes yes and that's not exact terminology of what they use but it's the basic synopsis of like okay if you are putting off this vibe that like mm-hmm. get out mm-hmm. of here i don't want you here you have contempt you have you know mm-hmm. you know all these thoughts um then of course your partner is going to be like oh okay and they're going to start pulling away and then eventually that, that wedge that's between you just grows bigger and bigger. So it is, if, as long as you make sure that you are fulfilling your responsibility to create a safe, warm environment that is inviting and welcoming, your yes. relationship will always thrive. Always. Oh, I love that. And what I love about that too, is it breaks down. It really explains well and illustrates the um, responsibility to others and the responsibility for we are responsible to our partner. We are responsible to those that we care for to create that welcoming space and to, to put off that kind of energy, right? We are not responsible for their feelings or for their actions. That's theirs to manage. And so I love how just that overview that you, and I think you said Robin Kristen Bell, didn't you? Because I heard Kristen, I was thinking Dak Shepard and Kristen. Isn't her name Kristen Bell? His wife? Um, love <laughs> Yes. Yes. That's where my mind went because they've done a lot of Gottman Institute stuff, those Dax and her, but Rob, Rob Bell. Yeah. He's fantastic too. Dax and Kristen actually talked about Kristen would like, it was almost like she thrived on 
leaving the house and the drama that ensued of like being yeah. chased fairy tale of like oh he loves me because he came after me kind of thing and he yes. was like Dax finally sat her down one day and was like look I am not doing this if you leave the house and so he started setting really firm boundaries with her and she was like oh I don't know how I don't like how this feels but I appreciate him and I want the relationship. So I'm choosing to respect those boundaries. And then it was like, okay, you can't leave the room and slam the door when you Mm -hmm. leave, when you, when you get mad. And so, so like, it was a little bit, bit more, um, like her area of where she, where she went in, you know, when the drama ensued, because that's what she thrived on that, that space mm-hmm. got a little bit less each time. Like you cannot yes. leave the house. This really healthy conflict yes. resolution where it's like, well, might as well sit down on the bed and just get happy in the same pants you got mad in because we're going to work this out here, sis. <laughs> I and love so it. Now they yes. like, now that they don't really even fight because right. he was healthy enough to say, and he is um, a recovering addict. Yes. So he yes. has been in therapy a lot and he has yeah. probably learned a lot. I'm, I'm assuming, I don't, I don't know that for sure. It seems like he has. Yes. He's, had, he's had all of this experience, which just goes to show you that therapy is not a last resort. Coaching, counseling, right. any of that is not a last resort. It yeah. is a, like, I know so many couples that get, like, I'm working with two couples right now that I've worked with for over two years and I don't see them regularly. I see mm-hmm. them maybe once a month, maybe once every three months, just as a maintenance as a, like, yep. Hey, these are the things we've been working on. These are the things that we've still got coming up. What do mm-hmm. we do? And yeah. that right there tells me when you are invested in your marriage enough to want that healthy space and also want to show your children what a healthy relationship looks like. Yes. Therapy, counseling, coaching is almost a must simply because you only know what you know. Mm -hmm. So you have to go to an expert to learn more. It's just like investing or banking or anything else you want to learn more about or do Mm -hmm. better with in your life. Like you're going to go to an expert. You're going to find out more information. Absolutely. My colleague here next door, Bryce likes to say, uh, use the analogy of a car, right? You do take your car in for maintenance. It's running fine. Everything seems fine, right? Maybe there are no even indicator lights on, but let's just take it in just to make sure. I'm like, that's a pretty good metaphor for how we need to stay tuned into our our relationships too. I do love that. It doesn't have to be because there is a problem. There still is a stigma around that. But for couples who are willing just every so often, like, hey, let's just go sit down with somebody else who's not so emotionally involved in everything that you've got here and have somebody else just kind of like ask us some questions that maybe were on our radar. That's a pretty good introspection into the relationship. I love that. Well, even like using that car analogy, like you're going to take it in right before you go on a big trip, right? So for your marriage, right before your kid graduates from high school, right before you have another child, right before your child goes to kindergarten, before you move, before you, you know, get a different job or anything like that. Like Mm -hmm. all of those things would be really great times for you to go in and just just have a little maintenance session. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one thing that's just because it's in my brain, I wanted to, because you said something about children and modeling things for them. One thing that I just feel really strongly about, and people might disagree with me on this, but when there is that breaking of patterns and you're really trying to do some things differently, if you start an argument in front of your kids, end the argument in front of the kids. Oh, sweet show Jesus. them yes. there is show them. And it, I I'm telling you, Cameron, I remember the day that I think it was just really divine intervention. Like we were in a car and we started this thing. And I think our daughter was like four in the backseat and I kept turning around and reassuring her. I'm just like, listen, we're having an argument. That's okay. Everything really is okay. We're just working it out. Sometimes it takes some time to work it out. Right. And just to, to model that because that's that rupture and repair, right? It is going to happen. And if we only do that as couples behind closed doors, how do our kids ever know? 
that this is a normal part of life, that things do come up. And so I just think that's part of modeling too. And again, within reason, I mean, if it's getting really heated there's name calling, which hopefully there's not, but yeah, within reason. But when it's that kind of stuff and you're kind of digging in, let your kids see you repair that. They need it. It's absolutely true what you said. Like mm-hmm. I am living proof of that. If you don't wow. see the resolution, yeah. you don't know how to create that. That's right. In a healthy sense. Yeah. So that's all yeah. part of what so feeds important. our attachment style, yep. right? Like it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. attachment injuries, yeah. so huge. And you know, even because I used to teach, I would see that in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, kids who would almost pick a fight with other kids, but then not know how to resolve it, Yes, you know, or, um, you could always tell when there's a lot of turbulence at home. Mm -hmm. I use the word turbulence. I'm so aviation, but (laughs) right. So like, they don't know, or you see that like the ones who are almost becoming an empath because Mm -hmm. they've learned to like calculate that risk of who's, who's on edge, who needs a little bit more Mm -hmm. help just so that they don't go over the edge kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you see so much, even with five-year-olds. And I don't think we give kids enough credit for understanding and like figuring, like they know a lot more than we give them credit for. And also more is caught than taught. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a a professor or mentor that would uh, talk about children being a barometer for what's going on in the family. And if we have the awareness and the, the humility to set our stuff aside and just tune in like, oh my gosh, if I can just read my kid's body language right now, they're telling me without words in their own way, like this feels like a lot, this feels like a lot of pressure in this house, right? I mean, the signs are all there. That's the yeah. thing, the system that we have, it, it works. We just have to pay attention to it. Well, and that's an emotional intelligence skill. You know, yes. that co-awareness of yeah. your partner and your children, that's not taught. No. So it's something that you, that's, I actually added an emotional intelligence um, course to my one-on-one course. Because I'm seeing all these, I work primarily um, with a lot of aviation couples. Um, I do, you know, accept anyone who comes to me, not anyone, but um, if they're not in aviation, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But aviation and first responders Mm -hmm. are actually the least empathic of all. They're taught to shut their emotions off and not taught to turn them back on. And so like that emotional intelligence skill, mm-hmm. I'm seeing it lacking more and more and more. And once they learn that empathy, it's like their whole dynamic of their relationship changes. Yes. It, it reminds me on a lesser degree of calling in when I used to work in the hospitals, <laughs> I'd call in like knowing I'm going to have to talk to a charge nurse who has people dying around or, you know, they're in surgery, like, oh, and what's wrong with you? You have a headache. Oh, and so, you know, like, yeah. right. That, that empathy piece, because when you are constantly giving and having to tend to those crisis things, there's actually a lot of trauma, right. Especially with first responders and, and what have you. And so to, to then, then they wonder why, why do I have all of these um, problems, like the physiological symptoms of all of that. Right. And they're so out of touch with their emotions. And if they're out of touch with their own emotions, they sure as heck are out of touch with their partner's emotions. Right. Oh yeah. So it's, there's a whole thing there to kind of start unlayering and peeling back and just slowly getting in touch with. It's like an onion. Yeah, it is. It is. And you cry a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. So um, for our listeners, do you do telehealth? Like, and are you accepting more patients? I do telehealth, but right now I'm really only licensed in the state of Kansas. I am okay. trying to expand that out okay. to Missouri and probably Oklahoma are going to be my next okay. two, maybe Arkansas. Okay. Um, yes. And Truly, Cameron, the need is so high right now in the Kansas City metro area. I had to stop taking new clients um, at least until May because I can't. I can get somebody in once, but then there's no no place to put them. Like, see you in six weeks. I mean, yeah. So I'm saying the need is high, and so for the nationwide things like uh, BetterHelp and and some of those, right? Um, Talkspace, I think, is another one. 
those can lasting. really be good. Lasting is another good one. Okay, good. Yeah. That's and I app. think that's so helpful. And also because we're so much used to this kind of thing, like the whole uh, Zoom and all of that stuff. Some people use it, you know, for, for offices, but now we're also accustomed to it. It's not so scary anymore to think about doing therapy that way. So right. I'm really thankful that that does exist. Me too. I'm booked till May too. I don't have any spaces available until May. And it breaks my heart because energetically I can't work with that, you know, the magnitude of clients that, um, you know, that is needed, but at the same time, and when they come to me as a last resort, you know, it's like, well, I can't see you until May. Well, I don't have until May, like my marriage (laughs) will be ended by then. I need to see someone right now kind of situation. And then that anxiousness is like, Mm-hmm. you know, pouring over. So mm-hmm. it breaks my heart. And that's another reason why if you think there's a problem or if you know there's a problem, or even if you just need a little maintenance, mm-hmm. it's important to get in immediately, mm-hmm. not waiting. Like yes. that's, I, I cannot stress that enough. Yeah. Yeah. I've just seen too many clients uh, where honestly, I was surprised, like hearing what they were coming in with. And I think it surprised them as well. They didn't think they were at that point that their marriage was ending, but they had lived with it for so long that by the time they really started unpacking, they're like, oh my gosh, I think we're done here. Actually, I don't think I have any more fight left in me. And so you're right. Getting in sooner rather than, uh, I think we're barely hanging on. It's maybe too late for that point. It's like I tell my, my clients when they start, I tell them fixing your marriage or getting it, you know, getting it to a healthy state, you're going to feel like you have a part-time job Yes, because it is, it is yep. that much work. It is that much effort, that much intention, that much thought. So mm-hmm. if you are waiting until you're like in dire need, having a part-time job is just energetically going to push you over the edge. Yep. So, yep. That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a really good uh, disclaimer right out the gate. Like, yep. this is going to be some stuff and it's going to yes, be. Yes, it is. Yep. Yes. Oh my gosh. Holly, I have loved, love, love, loved reconnecting with you and having me this conversation too. today. Thank you for yes. coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you and just to be able to have these kind of conversations and spaces that it's, it's really needed and it's really necessary. And that, again, even I really do a lot of referring to podcasts such as yours, such as the Gottman, it's, you know, in, in the space in between when people are trying to get in to see a therapist or a relationship yes. coach, give them some resources and, and you're doing a great job of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Recognizing Potential podcast. If you found the content in this episode helpful, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. I appreciate it so much, and it would absolutely make my day if you would share this episode by taking a screenshot and sharing it on your social media. I'll leave ways to tag me in the show notes, and I will talk to you next week.